Hey, this is your host Shane with another exciting episode of Radical Rocks. Today we'll talk about stolzite, best places to pan gold, gems that are formed in magmatic rocks, and so much more. On the first part of the journey, I was looking at radical rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand, hills, and rings. The first thing I found was a geocrystals, quartz with no clouds. The agate was hot and the ground was hard, but the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock with no name. Felt good to have in my hand. In the desert, that's right. Radical rocks are everywhere, and today we'll talk about uh, radical rocks from all over the world. We're going to talk about uh, stolzite, which uh, is an interesting mineral. We're going to talk about the best places to pan gold uh, and gemstones. We'll talk about the quicksilver rush of Arkansas. We'll talk about uh, a marine crocodile, some fossil news, and so much more, guys. We'll talk about um, chalcedony and gems that were formed in magmatic rocks, and so much more. So thank you for subscribing to the podcast. You can get us on any app that's out there, and um, we appreciate your subscribing. That helps us with our algorithm. Also, you can get us on YouTube. Uh, videos just look up radical rocks will show up we've got over 50 videos on lapidary um, digging up minerals and rocks and all kinds of stuff silversmithing you name it gold panning all kinds of good stuff also uh, like I said me we look up radical rocks if you don't see us at radical rocks sometimes we're at radical rocks USA you can check that out I think I think we have a Twitter that's Radical Rocks USA, if that's your bag. All right, so let's get right into it. We've got a rock ton of information and fun stories to share with you on such topics. I want to tell you about this really great story. The story is called The Search for the Perfect Stone. Now, this is a very long story. It is, uh, if you go to the newyorker.com, you can find out about uh, this gem and mineral dealer. He actually started off as a mineral collector, but because some of the great finds that he had in the 50s, he actually accumulated enough gems and minerals that he became a dealer. And this brought him opportunities to travel all over. And this is stories about people who often flock to Tucson each winter by Rachel Monroe. Now, I'm not going to go into this story, but I read um, down uh, quite a ways and to several different stories that about this and about these dealers that have taken over the Tucson gym and mineral shows because their businesses are booming, they've got these bidding wars, there's these backroom deals, but the history of how these guys got into this is really neat. If you like a really good story, I would recommend you go check this out. Um, 
and read it. Again, it's The New Yorker. It's The story is titled The Search for the Perfect Stone, and it is uh, written by, what was her name? Rachel Monroe. And it was dated for February the 21st. So, like I said, it's really too lengthy to share here, but wow, what a great story. Washington legislation is looking to establish their official state dinosaur. This uh, dinosaur is related to the T-Rex. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. It's The article's in the spokesmen.com. for the Spokesman Review, and it's attributed to um, Elena Perry. But this dinosaur uh, is of the is in the House of Representatives right now, and there's quite a neat story about the kids coming with them, voting that this dinosaur would be adopted as the state um, dinosaur, state fossil, because of discovering it. Now they said that originally this T-Rex relative of the Creaceous period, I believe, believe, um, would have been much like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, um, and in that type of shape and body. And I'm not really sure how to pronounce this. Oh shoot. Had a pop up here. It's, uh, my goodness. Sorry. Having some technical issues here. It's a sec, Cisaurus Rex. It's spelled C-U-C-I-A-S-A-U-R-U-S. And this would have been about the same size as a a T-Rex. And like I said, they're voting on it. It passed the House, but now it has to be approved by the Senate. So hopefully they'll vote on that and make that uh, their new uh, official state dinosaur. Pretty cool. Why you should think twice before getting an opal engagement ring? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and I know the Rockhounds are already coming up with an idea of why you wouldn't want to. Um, There's quite a few. At thelist.com, they go into this. Leslie Veliz tells us all about it. Um, Also, engagement rings are not just opals anymore. I mean, there's just such a wide variety of rings Uh, that are accepted as a suitable engagement ring. So Opal's um, old superstitions are that they're bad luck. Um, That is because they often break. They are kind of brittle. If you are familiar with Opal's, you know these are made from water. Uh, Water and silica basically formed. They can have different hues, including uh, translucent, black, gray, blue, orange, white backgrounds, fire colors of of play are most popular for opals, fire opals. It's also the birthstone of October, and um, opals do carry a history of love, uh, such as uh, royalty among Queen Victoria and Cleopatra. These are some stories that are tied to opal, and brides, uh, designers now are saying that the beauty of the opal is something that uh, brides are wanting now, and uh, it can cost anywhere from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars. Opals are very valuable, very collectible. They're not as hard as some of the other stones that are used as engagement rings, such as diamonds, which are tin, of course. 
Sapphires, nine. Emeralds, nine or eight. Also, emeralds break kind of easy, too, if they're hit really hard. But uh, opals are only five to 6.5 on the hardness scale. They also tend to dry out, so you would want to keep them uh, in, in water. Some people put a little Vaseline on them. Um, I've heard don't do it because it could freeze. Waters are liquids, they say, are opal's worst enemy. Never soak it. Um, <laughs> I don't believe that. I, I think, you know, as long as it doesn't freeze, uh, it's not a bad idea to, to put something in the opal to, to keep it moisturized. That's very common. People have been doing that for years. Also, other engagement rings, of course, are the style. Uh, vintage styles are very popular right now. Looking at... Uh, Something that looks like a design from a hundred years ago to Art Deco of uh, the 20s and 30s, the Roaring 20s. Those designs are quite popular. Halo uh, rings are also in with uh, different colored stones, darker stones, chocolate diamonds. Even black diamonds are the, all the rage right now. It started in about uh, 2000. Uh, 16 or something like that. The star Miss Carrie Bradshaw of Sex and the City uh, was given a black diamond ring, which became a very edgy type of ring at the time, and now it has gained uh, quite a bit of popularity. Also, sapphires, uh, dark blue sapphires from uh, Princess Diana to many others, that has become a wonderful ring. For engagements, Morganites are another one because of the pink. Very romantic time and stone to give during Valentine's Day. And um, other rings paired with even uh, a diamond with a, uh, with a pearl. Uh, trilogy engagement rings are also making a comeback in 2023. Bezel settings are another one where you will see gemstones that uh, are not... Uh, Probably not diamonds, but other gemstones that are not really diminished by a bezel-type ring that would encircle uh, are quite popular. Something that uh, that uh, is said to is going to pop up a lot on Instagram a lot and um, your Instagram feed. I have Instagram, but I just never really use it. I just don't have time for it. Um, a solitary stone is another thing. People, some people like it very simple. Um, an Asher cut ring. This is very uh, Art Deco kind of look. Um, and then pear shape uh, engagement rings are another one that is trending. Mixing metals is also something else where you have uh, white gold with yellow gold and such. So these are the trends in jewelry right now. Next, we have this giant uh, man-eating fish. And then as you read the story, it says that it uh, wasn't really a man-eater. It's eating a four-legged claimed cousin um, of man. <laughs> this fish, it says, is a 360-million-year-old fossil of new killer fish species found in Africa. You can read about this at... Uh, interestingengineering.com and uh, Rapindra Brahmambahath writes about it and there's a big picture of this uh, fish here. It was about uh, two to three meters long. 
So, uh, yeah, you know, six to nine feet, not too, not too shabby. Um, it is the biggest prehistoric bony fish ever discovered in the southern African region. It's been studied by uh, the university in Sweden, and uh, they say these are closely related to other um, pteropods and land type, so they claim. And then um, this fish did have teeth um, and would have eaten four-legged animals of Africa. So there you have it. Giant fish. I didn't think that's that big for a fish. There's bigger fish than that out, out in the ocean right now. So I don't know. I'm not too impressed. But for South Africa, that was the biggest fossil. Now, one of the oldest ever found ancient marine crocodiles is discovered. You can go to um, uh, Sciatech Daily. It's uh, S-C-I-T-E-C-H daily.com. And Taylor and Francis Group have a picture of this crocodile swimming around with a relative of the cuttlefish. This also is found at uh, the Jurassic Coast in uh, Dorset, the UK, in our friends in England that's found there in the uh, early Jurassic period. Um, they say that this lived and this baby, I had the size of it. It wasn't that big. I think it's only about six feet or um, two, two and a half, three meters about that size. Not a giant uh, crocodile, but they say this is a distant relative to modern day uh, marine crocodiles that we see today. Next, let's see, what else? Okay, let's talk about the best places to pan for gold. I don't know, on a nice hot day, I really enjoy sitting by a creek bed or walking up and down a creek bed, reading the creek bed, looking at the banks alongside the creek bed and looking inside the corners and trying to figure out where the heavy things would have uh, kind of fallen out and could have gotten trapped behind a boulder or on a bench of sand and rocks and gravel and digging through that and looking to see what kind of rocks am I finding. Um, if I'm finding a lot of quartz and serpentine, heavy stones, uh, fishing sinkers, things like that, black sand, layers of black sand, pea gravel with black sand, then I know that I'm in an area uh, if I find a little bit of flower gold in there, a few flakes, I know that's the kind of area I want to dig. So using these skills, using panning skills, which if you want to learn how to gold pan, I've got some a uh, couple videos on, on YouTube where we do some gold panning. I've even got a top secret gold pan handed down to me from my great-grandpa, who was a real gold prospector um, in California back in the... Uh, the early 1900s, owned a few different claims, and uh, was a real, real, uh, a real historical person. His name was Earl McKay, um, and was up in the Lake Isabella area, which is in the very southern part of the Sierras of California. And uh, he's in the history books. Really neat stories there about those old. Um, old-time uh, people who lived in homesteads and 
um, hunted and worked hard for a living, did gold mining, did worked as cowboys, worked as farmers, hardworking people, Native American peoples that uh, lived off the land and made products and textiles and baskets and um, goods. It, really an interesting history. But anyway, gold panning and gemstone panning, these are the best places to go. If you go to msn.com and um, you look up the article, Best Places to Pan for Gold and Gemstones in America, the story is by Morena Zapta, and uh, she's done quite a few stories. This is a really good one. These are mostly pay sites, but uh, some of them I don't think we've talked about. Blue Crystal Mines in Utah, what to look for there, Azerite. Azerite, a beautiful blue stone. Um, Azerites is the main gemstone mined at the Blue Crystal Mines. The commercial site allows individuals to do independent digs for this beautiful crystal. However, the fee is pretty steep, $100 per person per hour. Um, but boy, you could easily get uh, just a couple of these crystallized Azerite specimens and make your money back. Discounts, I would look up the um, gem and rock mineral clubs in that area. The closest to the nearest city is La Salle. That's two different words, uh, La, L-A, and Sal, S-A-L. Um, you would dig these up, and um, it, it would be a, a beautiful blue crystals that you would find of Azerite. I think that is a new one to put on my bucket list right there. Mount Micah Mine. This is in Maine. The nearest city here, Maine, America, these are all in the United States, is the city of Paris. Not Paris, France. Paris, Maine. There's even a video here on it. But what you want to look for here is tourmaline. They've got tourmaline there and rose quartz. Um, they recommend some places to stay here. It was opened in 1821. It's the best place, they say, to find gems like rose quartz for more than a century. Independent rock hounders who are enthusiastic about bringing their own tools and looking for precious stones on their own, we recommend it to people who have some experience with prospecting and can identify gems from regular rocks. Alternatively, you can also join a tour. They've got a link here and uh, certainly sounds worth um, looking at. I don't know what color tourmalines they have there, so do some research. Ron Coleman Mining in Arkansas, the nearest city is Jesseville, and you want to look for quartz crystals there. It's located near the Hot Springs National Park. The Ron Coleman Mining allows visitors to spend unlimited time digging for crystals and quartz on the premises. Staff will even teach you digging methods, help you identify crystals, and you can even buy equipment on site if you don't have your own. So I suggest bringing the basics. Um, you can do part day or full day. They even allow dogs to go with you on the dig. So that's a plus. Fairy Stone State Park in Virginia. Um, these fairy stones don't look super impressive, but uh, something to collect. It says uh, the nearest city is Stewart. And if... The mines seem too dreary to you. Come to the beautiful state park instead. Virginia's Fairy Stone State Park is known for starlight crystals, fairy stones that give it this name. Now, 
a Starlight will give you like an X pattern when you cut it. I should, uh, one of these days I'll do a video. I have some Starlights. I should probably do that. That would probably be pretty interesting. I bet people would really like that. You're allowed to search for these crystals anywhere in the park, but they recommend getting a map from the visitor center to help you find the area where they are in most abundance. The only tools you're allowed to bring are your hands, though the stones are not deep enough for this to be a problem. So sounds like they're right there on the surface. And, um, you know, yeah, I don't know why you couldn't use a stick or something, but uh, it says there's more here. Let me see if there's more or not. I don't see any more. It says more, but I'm not getting more. So more of what? More frustration? I think it just means there's more advertising down below. All right, next. Let's talk about these Egyptian turtles. They've dug up a bunch of turtles. The Egyptian team that uncovered 70 million year old turtles say there's more discoveries to come. According to this article, thenationalnews.com, it says in this article, paleontologists from the University of Cairo and New Valley hope to exhibit fossils in an open-air museum in the western desert. They've got a picture of these folks with tables full of these turtles. Their turtles are found in an area uh, that is very sandy, and um, they are finding signs of salt water, but they say these turtles are freshwater turtles from the Cretaceous period, and um, they are mostly smaller, um, you know, palm size, but some of them are much bigger. The size, just looking at the pictures here, some of them are as big as a large pizza, it looks like, the shell. So you can see the imprint of these here. Um, there's a huge area here that's being investigated in this area. Um, they, it's 440,000 square kilometers. They're finding herbivore type dinosaurs as well as crocodiles in Egypt's western desert um, and digging them up down an area which is now most of North Africa and reached all the way down into the south of Egypt where these creatures probably once roamed around this uh, ancient ocean which was a version of the Mediterranean and due to tectonics shifts um, this is where it ended up and um, you can see the picture of this. It's uh, becoming a popular hunt to look for these ancient turtles. Um, these also been found in tombs, apparently. You can see a lot of other pictures. The article's um, not too lengthy, but there's more information there if you want. Next, the dark, glittering history of the cursed Golaconda diamonds. Uh, let me grab a swig of coffee here. All right, if you go to ancient-origins.net, you can find out um, about these dark yet glittering history of the cursed Golaconda diamonds and a lot more history about other gemstones as well. But the history of these is, is rich with tradition and legend going all the way back to the 16th century in this region of India known as the Golaconda. This was an area renowned for diamonds and was a major source of diamonds for centuries. 
because of the exceptional quality and the unique color and the, all the historical significance, these became highly prized by rulers and merchants all over the ancient world. Despite legends of curses surrounding these diamonds, the Golaconda diamonds are considered some of the most valuable diamonds even today in the entire world. The history of the Golaconda diamond trade began all the way back before the 16th century in India, and uh, it was ruled by a dynasty with these that owned these diamond mines, and the Golaconda was controlled by the royal family that produced these diamonds of exceptional quality, highly prized, again, all over the world. Now, by the 18th century, Britain was able to establish trading posts in the region and began to control this diamond trade. I think they still do, right? The established powerful diamond syndicate, as it was known, was controlled, controlling all the diamond mines and even the trade. Many famous diamonds like the Koai Nor and the Hope Diamond were mined and exported to European countries where all the money was. Beautiful, beautiful diamonds. They have a picture of a replica of the Koai Nor that was at the Prince of Wales Museum in Western India in Mambia. Now, the 19th century rolled in and the Golaconda diamond mines began to decline. The British began to shift their focus to South Africa to go get those people to dig diamonds for them and control their diamond market at that time. The Golaconda diamonds continued to be prized for their exceptional quality and historical significance. Today, the legendary and the legacy of the Golaconda diamonds lives in many famous and valuable diamonds that were mined in this region, many of which can be found in museums and royal collections all over the world. Again, these are still the most highly sought-after diamonds of all. Um, the quality was amazing of these diamonds compared to other diamonds. They are, again, considered the finest and uh, most valuable in the world. While most diamonds are white or yellow, Golaconda diamonds come in a variety of colors, including blue, green, pink, and colorless. The Hope Diamond, for example, is known for its rare deep blue color. Colorless diamonds in this region, such as the Koai Nor, are known for their shocking clarity and appearing almost as glittering glass. They have several different videos here on the Hope Diamond and other things that you can check out. The Hope Diamond was 45, well, is 45.52 carats and is exhibited in the National Museum of Natural History. Very beautiful. Size is an important part of the rarity of the Golaconda Diamonds. Most diamonds are quite small, while many of the Golaconda Diamonds weighed in at several dozen carats. The Koei Nor, for example, weighed originally 106 carats. Um, the article is kind of repetitive. It talks about some of the curses that came along with the diamonds. It talks about the Regent Diamond, the crown jewel of French history. The Regent Diamond is another one of these famous diamonds from the Golaconda. It was discovered in the late 17th century, and it was said to be the biggest diamond of its time, weighing over 140 carats. Um, 
There it is, pictured on the crown of King uh, Louis the Sixteenth, and it is at the Lever Museum in Paris, in Sweet Paris. Um, Golakinda diamonds have a very legendary history, and uh, you can find out more about this. Articles accredited to Lex Lay as well at the bottom. And uh, what beautiful diamonds they are. Just to have a nice diamond of high quality, you would be quite blessed. Prospecting for copper with machine learning and zircons. By the way, we're going to get into chalcedony. Um, we're going to get into our mineral of the day, a mineral of the week, uh, stolazite. Very interesting. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up. Prospecting for copper with machine learning and zircons. You go to eos.org. And look up that article by Rachel Fitz called Prospecting for Copper with Machine Learning and Zircons. You will find out by using artificial intelligence, researchers can tell how to identify zircons and derive what kind of valuable copper deposits might lie in these areas. Zircons are very common. They can be found all over. Um, they are nature's, they are known as nature's time capsules and uh, they believe that uh, this is a dating process and also textures of zircons will identify valuable mineral deposits. According to a new study, um, there is a method that is developed to tell the difference between the zircon grains formed in copper associated with rocks and granthic rocks and a method could help scientists search for mineral deposits and probe the origins of different sediments. And this is where the AI comes in. It says they are having about an 85% success rate using this technique. You can read a little bit more about it if you want. Check it out. All right. Let's see here. I want to talk about um, this here. Let's see. This is about some unusual rocks that somebody found while hunting near the Little Missouri River in western Pike County, he noticed a dark red color. What did he find? Well, he found the quicksilver rush of uh, Arkansas that we talked about in the beginning. This is an opinion piece by Rex Nelson called The Quicksilver Rush, and you go to uh, nwaonline.com, and you can uh, check out this article. And this gentleman here, Crown Cox, discovered this rock. And meantime, while they were blasting rock near the Antony River in Pike County, uh, another area, they found a rock, and that person kept that rock as well. Well, eventually, uh, it was discovered and released that the Cinnabar mining uh, was was a, a, a rush, quicksilver rush for this mercury or cinnabar. Cinnabar is the ore which mercury or quicksilver comes from. This is the liquid metal. Uh, if you've ever seen a thermostat, the old school thermostats would have mercury in them or the old thermometers used to have mercury in them. They don't, I don't think they use that too much anymore. Those are probably collectible, I guess, or considered a, a hazard. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, at that time, mercury was really needed, and America did not have a lot of uh, mercury sources. 
Mercury was imported at that time. So when this came out, um, about half of the needs of America could be met um, with this mine in Arkansas. So it says uh, in the 20th century, people used mercury for many purposes. Pharmaceuticals um, used it to kill bacteria on the skin. It was used as fungicide and insecticides. I don't know how safe that is. Thermometers and barometers utilized it. Uh, also, it is a component up until recent times in fluorescent and vapor lamps uh, serve as a catalyst in production of critical chemicals such as chlorine and caustic soda. Militaries consider it a strategic material. Uh, they use it in bombs, things like that. Southwest Arkansas discovery came soon on after the Great Depression, so this was uh, very, very helpful for them during the wartime. Uh, I mean, right after the Depression, right before the war. This helped uh, create jobs where people poured into the area in 1932, and there was even a Times Magazine story called The Quick Silver Rush. From that point on uh, until about 1930, 20-some companies came in, incorporated to mine the Quicksilver in the area, and uh, all these entities happened. Now, during the economic downturn of the Great Depression, there was a, a, a shortage of supply of lumber at the Clark County town of Graysonia, and uh, the mill was uh, slowed down, so the smelting slowed down, and mercury slowed down as well. Um, the only living quicksilver miner from that era is thought to be 97-year-old Jack Daniels, uh, and his parents were there. When he was a young boy, he landed a job uh, shoveling the rocks, cinnabar rocks that were moved from the mine to the furnace, and Daniel says he remembers making some $2.82 a day. So, uh, you know, that uh, that money came in handy back in those days because uh, you know, a little bit of money you could afford to maybe buy a car. He said uh, during the Depression, nobody worried about anything but making a living and buying a car. Uh, the Mercury District was six miles long and 30 miles or excuse me, six miles wide and 30 miles long. The Cinnabar mines were in Pike County, three-county area. There was at least 67 mines and prospects, along with hundreds of smaller exploration test sites and trenches. Ten mines accounted for most of the production, and um, Michael Howard is accredited with writing a lot of this information down uh, about uh, Spain being the primary control uh, and, then, and then the needs of mercury and tracer bullets and chemical warfare and all these things that were going on in 1941 through 44. Um, these mines produced a lot of that mercury for World War II. It also was essential for bullet primers. So cinnabar was roasted in the presence of oxygen to break the mineral down free of the mercury vapor and sulfur dioxide. These gases are cooled. The mercury condenses into a liquid being recovered in a retort and then they would refine it and they yield about 11,400 flasks. One flask, as I uh, was told, is about 75 pounds. So they did this between 1931 and 1944. Since 1946, 
The only reported production was 27 flasks from one retort one mile south of Kirby. Additional flasks recovered from 1965 from low-grade ores that were previously mined. So mercury is very toxic, so um, it is not a favorite to be mined, but it is still needed. So this is something you probably uh, don't see a lot. Uh, they talk about some of the geology there. This is kind of a sandstone type uh, material where the mercury deposits were folded in so the pockets uh, can be very rich and then uh, then they can get very narrow and thin and kind of fade out so it sounds like it might be a little bit digging intensive all right next let's talk about blue chalcedony blue chalcedony our friends at rock and gym you can go to rock the letter in gym.com and find out about blue chalcedony the lapidary superstar um, I just think chalcedony is a really neat rock because of the banding part uh, patterns also um, you will find fortification which is basically a three-angled hole in it with crystals or druzy lining it typically very uh, sought after type of agate or chalcedony to be found in the desert fields. Blue chalcedony is a very attractive variety of silica. Of course, chalcedony comes in many different colors and patterns. Blue chalcedony is found in several places around the world, uh, such as Turkey, Nambia, and even in Montana. Uh, I have some from Malawi. It says it's from Malawi when I bought it. It can form in massive forms, nodules, smooth, rounded pebbles, massive boulders, druzy, bitrudal formations, nodules with druzy lining, masses lining the inside surfaces of uh, geodes, and so forth. So chalcedony is mined all over the world. Um, it's not rare, but blue is a rarer color of chalcedony. The name chalcedony comes from the Latin word Chalcedonius, which is from the Greek word, and it was found in the ancient Greek maritime town of Chalcedon. Um, and this was on the Straits of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and uh, the town is called Kadut Koi and belongs to the Istanbul district. Chalcedony is one of the most ancient gemstones mentioned in the Bible, carved in cylindrical seals in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, as early as the 7th century BCE. And blue chalcedony has been used for cameos, carvings, sculptures, jewelry, insignia rings, uh, some that were found in Rome recently in the bottom of their spas and bathtubs and things like that. Blue chalcedony and quartz have the chemical formula of SiO2. The difference between the two is their crystalline structure. Crystalline, sometimes called microcrystalline, is a quartz type that forms crystals that are large enough to be visible to the naked eye. It includes rock crystals, amethyst, rose quartz, and smoky quartz. Crystals in the trigonal system can be terminated, doubly terminated, twinned, and is about 7 on the hardness scale. Chalcedony, however, is a uh, cryptocrystalline or microcrystalline variety of quartz and its crystals are too small to be distinguished without magnification. Chalcedony can be slightly softer than quartz uh, under 7 as low as 6.5 uh, for good gym grade material. 
and the dense arrangements of its crystal structure gives chalcedony greater strength. It is hard enough to be used for intricate carvings, takes a high polish, and exhibits good wearability, making it suitable for jewelry purposes. So there's a lot more on this article if you want to find out about uh, more about chalcedony. Um, I like uh, chrysophase, which is another type of chalcedony. Uh, carnelian is preferred by many people. Pink chalcedony, I found some of that out toward uh, Lavic once. Very beautiful. It's kind of a paint, uh, faint pink. And then the holly blue chalcedony, very sought after. Um, usually in the trade, white, gray, blue, uh, translucent type is what is seen. The materials multicolored, banded agates. Um, uh, multicolor is not as common for blues, um, but uh, can be found. The hue, the tone, the variations, the primary color, and banding are what creates its valuable, um, how valuable it is, uh, whether it has desirable color uniformity or structures and patterns determines how, uh, or bad inclusions, if it has a lot of inclusions, this can determine its prices. So higher prices for the more intense, brighter colors and patterns and less of the, um, the imperfections. So you can check that out. There's also uh, parts on celebrating, hue sizes and shapes, regionally impacts and nodules, the allure of druzy, shared traits, distinct appearance, color varieties, lapidary work and design, carving blue chalcedony, caring for blue chalcedony, blue chalcedony in design. So it's quite lengthy if you want to check this out. Just look it up on Rock and Jim. It's free. It's there for you to look at. Blue Chalcedony, a lapidary superstar. Um, usually these articles are credited to um, Bob Jones. Let's see if he's here. This time it is Helene, Helen uh, Herman. Helen Saras Herman. She's accredited with this article. Very good article. Very large. All right, next. I think we are getting down to the end. I've got a couple more stories I want to tell you about Stolazite. Stolazite's value, price, and jewelry information. You can look this up at gymsociety.org. Joel E. Arim, who is a Ph.D. and uh, gemologist, he talks about stolazite here. It is a rare material, much rarer than wolfenite. Usually occurs in minute crystals, but Australian crystals can be up to one inch. This is an orangish uh, hexagonal. Uh, has very good optics. It is an occurrence. Uh, it occurs as a secondary mineral in oxidized zones of tungsten bearing ore deposits. Some of the great occurrences occur at Broken Hill in South Wales, Australia. Uh, also, Brazil, England, Germany, Nigeria, Sardinia, Utah, Arizona, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania in the U.S. And it is named after Dr. Stolz of Bohemia, who first brought attention to the mineral. And uh, there are a lot of great articles there if you want to find out that. Now, also, we got to go to MindDat. Dot org and look up about um, stolazite. Here we see some beautiful pictures of uh, a cubed uh, crystal. We see a terminated crystal of stolazite 
from the Clara mine in uh, Germany, and we see some stolazite with uh, kind of a square and then partially terminated with flat uh, tip from France. Beautiful, lighter colors on those two. The orange uh, strolazite from the Clara mine here in Germany, um, in near Freiburg region, it says. Now, as we go through and check out what's on MindDat about this mineral, it's reddish brown to brown. It could be yellowish gray, smoky gray, gray brown, uh, yellowish lemon orange, orange yellow, red, or even a green, which is extremely rare. It's not very hard, only two and a half to three. It has tetragonal uh, crystal system. <coughs> Excuse me, it's from the Shiite group, um, named after uh, in honor of uh, Johan, Johan, Johan. Anton Stolas, and uh, he was a, a mineral collector from the Czech Republic, it says here, interest in minerals and built an important collection. He provided the first specimen of stolazite for um, inspection and study. More facts about it are here um, as far as colors. Um, what else? I want to get into the crystals. It has picture of here, several of them. It has the atomic structure. And then finally, we are getting to the locations. I want to talk about the locations. It's just taking me a while to scroll down to the bottom of the page here. It is associated with many other minerals, but tungsten. Okay, it will. The fluorescent of strolozite uh, will be in a UV light. Uh, it can be a bright red to a red orange and then um, with a low wave um, UV it can be a lemon yellow so you have all these different things it melts at only a thousand one hundred and twenty three degrees <coughs> excuse me and let me scroll down here a little quicker it's taking too long all right locations boy you can find it uh, just about every continent here in Australia, you will find it in uh, New South Wales, several different areas here, Broken Hill District, um, the North Mine, South Mines in that area, all over um, Tasmanian, it's found there. It is found in Austria, in the Village Land District, and other areas. Let's see what else we find here, Brazil. You will find in Brazil, Bulgaria, Canada, and British Columbia. China also um, is known to have the mineral there all over. Czech Republic, Europe in the Ore Mountains, France, of course, we already talked about. Several areas in France, uh, quite prolific in France. Germany, um, we see it in quite an area of uh, Germany, Saxony. Greece, also. Uh, Hungary, Italy, so a lot of areas, but only those few areas where the best come. Japan, even, um, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Nambia, New Zealand, Nigeria, Norway, Peru, Poland, Portugal, Russia, Solvik, Solvika, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Thailand, 
the UK, of course, some great specimens from there. Um, USA, yes, Arizona, all over. It is found there. California, Idaho, in Lima County, Maine, Massachusetts, Missouri, Montana, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Carolina, Rhode Island, Utah, and then Uzbekistan. So there you have it. Stolzite, beautiful mineral, rarer than wolfenite. Now for our last article. This is our last topic of the day. Gems formed in magmatic rocks. Now I'm only going to hit the highlights on this because this is an extensive conversation. Um, very nerdy and techy, I guess you could say. You want to go to gia.edu. This is the Jim Institute. Um, Aaron C. Plowkey and James E. Shigley tell us about gems formed in magmatic rocks. This is a wonderful study if you want to get into real nerdy stuff. What kind of gems are formed in this magmatic rocks? Well, what is magmatic rocks? Um, it's kind of a new term to me. But it's really something that if you have studied the basic geology, um, you already know it. So there are the rigid layers of the earth, uh, the lithosphere, which is composed of rocks and minerals and chemical compounds and all these other things. And then there's the mineral formations that happen in this lithosphere, which dips down into the deeper part, which when minerals are formed from the cooling of the solidization of igneous magmas, crystallization from high temperature hydrothermal solutions and vapors, the crystallization from low temperature solutions, and recrystallation during metamorphism, that kind of sums it up, okay, on, on the, the 60,000 foot level. So basically, to put it in layman's terms, and, and this, I'm not even getting that technical right there, but what's happening is in the earth, there's things going on. You can think of a volcano, and you can think of the layers of the earth that you saw in school, and there's cracks. These cracks sometimes are under pressure, sometimes they're not under pressure. Sometimes they just bubble right up to the ocean or right up to the top of a volcano, or they just form in a valley out of nowhere. And these magmatic minerals are forming during the crystallization of these magmas or this molten rock. The, the lithosphere is below the dirt and rocks and can bend down in there. And as this magma goes up there and pushes pressure and things like that up there with water and other things that happen, that's when the beautiful gemstones are made. They're usually very um, related to igneous which is that hot, volcanic, under pressure, lots of heat, magmas, and things like that. They're usually associated with that. But not just that alone, because our whole Earth, uh, you know, the whole Sierras is, is, is grant, uh, granite, you know, which is basically like, um, you know, was created from this hot magma at one time under pressure, right? So... These cracks and, and cones and things like that that would form, faults and things like that, 
would make it happen. Now, the metamorphic ones that happen under pressure could happen from other rocks and minerals that are pushed together under uh, plates or are affected by this magma um, to the older rocks and minerals that are there. And then those could become gemstones. But primarily, uh, most of them are of, of the hardest, uh, best ones are, are not metamorphic. Garnets are metamorphic, but most of them are this, uh, um, of this type here. So what kind of gems and minerals do you find? Well, pretty much everything, pretty much everything. They have a classification of igneous rocks based on the mineral composition and texture. Um, they take you through some of these basic rocks of the most important igneous rocks. Um, these are the ones that uh, you're looking for. So these air, they have a wonderful diagram here of the lithosphere. So it, it's underneath the ocean. Um, it's underneath a lot of uh, dirt and it goes down um, into the next layer of rock uh, into the earth and that is what is changed by this vul volcanism around these hot spots from these eruptions and such. So you can see that in this picture. So some of the magmas that form are going to form where they make these gemstones. Some of the terms are a dike. A dike is a narrow body of rock that cuts across another rock. There's a sill. That's a narrow rock body that runs parallel to sedimentary layers. Um, a diaper, which is a domed body, a mass of igneous rocks that's been forced upward to brittle overlaying rocks that push it up to a dome. A pluton, or a, a, a batholith, is a large mass of igneous rocks. And a lopolith is a body of igneous rocks that bulges downward or upward, okay? And that stuff is happening under there that is probably making these gemstones. Then the type of crystallization that occurs during this process um, is also what is making this, uh, this, this process where these gemstones are made. So the gem mineral formations from magmas of course, we think of diamonds in this layer of pressure, extreme pressure in the uh, kimberlite cones that are formed under pressure with the carbon uh, forming these beautiful diamonds. Also, other crystals such as green peridot are formed uh, in basalts through these cracks and crevices. Uh, olivine, which is a magnesium iron silica mineral, this uh, is also another gem that can form in this type of deposit. Um, they go through several types, uh, quartz, quartz crystals, um, quartz garnets. This is more the metamorphic type that we talked about. This is a very extensive article. If you want to learn a lot more about um, sapphire, multicolored sapphires, uh, corundum, zircon, uh, other minerals, topaz, uh, how the occlusions are formed. If you want to learn more about the real um, geological aspects of the magmatic rocks, these gems that are formed in there, go ahead and check this out, gia.edu, and check it out. That's about it for tonight, folks. Until next time, remember, rock hounds don't die, they petrify.